Who decides medicine prices? How are vaccines made? Well, hello and welcome to Health Conversation, a podcast series brought to you by FPIA, the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations, where today we're asking how can we navigate COVID-19 in a new winter health landscape? My name is Sue Saville, an independent health journalist, and I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Atkinson, who is the anti-infectives product lead at Pfizer. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Hello, Sue. <laughs> so tell me, what does an anti-infectives product lead do? Well, so I actually um, am from South Africa. I qualified doing my medical degree in South Africa and worked at the height of the HIV AIDS pandemic in South Africa, where most of our issues were around HIV AIDS, as well as tuberculosis. And I, I sort of realized early on the importance of medicine in our battle to help these patients. And so from maybe even the first year after I graduated, it was my goal to work uh, at Pfizer and in the anti-infective space. And it's taken me a little bit of time to get there, but I have been working at Pfizer for the last 16 years. And in the last year, I've been working finally on anti-infectives. And so we look at, you know, the the plethora of um, viruses and bacteria and looking at medicines that we can develop that can really help patients uh, fight these diseases. And so now winter is already upon us, of course. Um, But in terms of infections, the COVID-19 vaccination programs have, of course, allowed a a return pretty much to pre-pandemic life. So is there any reason still to be worried about infections? It's absolutely true that uh, we are in a much better place today than we were two years ago. And that is largely due to the innovations that have been around vaccinations and treatments, as well as efforts by governments uh, to, you know, across across the world, uh, coordinated efforts with governments and industry to uh, help tackle this pandemic. But we absolutely cannot forget that COVID-19 has not gone away. We continue to see new variants or subvariants emerge, and we see cases fluctuate. You know, we see increases and decreases um, in relation to these new variants that are, are, are emerging. And although some of us have returned to normal life, traveling and socializing around the holiday period like we did three years ago, there are many people with certain health conditions and factors that put them at risk for getting uh, severe COVID who do not have peace of mind um, and and can't fully carry on. Uh, And of course, winter has for a long time been associated with uh, rising cases of influenza or flu. And and perhaps we've forgotten the sort of toll that can take of the World Health Organization saying influenza can cause some 5 million cases of severe illness and up to 650,000 deaths worldwide every year. And in Europe alone, um, some fifteen to 70,000 people can die from influenza. So have we perhaps got to a point, though, where in the last couple of years, due to COVID, we uh, might have a, a lower natural immunity? We've been hiding away a bit. Should we anticipate there might be a spike in uh, influenza this winter? Absolutely. I, this year in particular. So for the last two winters, 2021 and 21-22, we've seen no to mild uh, influenza seasons. 
And so we have a population who's not familiar with this virus. And we uh, we know from our um, colleagues in the Southern Hemisphere, particularly Australia, which we use to model what's going to happen in the Northern Hemisphere winter, they've just gone through their winter and they saw increased rates. In fact, I have a personal experience of this because my dad is a general practitioner in South Africa and he was telling me around August time, he's seeing so much more influenza that he's seen for years and it was a real concern to him. Um, and I think that we've also heard from the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control, the ECDC, that RSV, so respiratory syncytial virus, could could add to our, ish, our problems this year. So we could have this sort of synergistic layers of COVID-19 on top of influenza, on top of RSV, which could result to this triple-demic that uh, could cause a severe burden on, on the healthcare systems, and in particular to those vulnerable patients. Because as you said, these the people that are more likely to have severe cases of influenza and to die from influenza are actually the same people that are more likely to have severe COVID-19. They have certain risk factors or underlying health conditions, which put them at risk for both of these. So you mentioned other infections that, Joe, the influenza, we have maybe RSV. What are the risks, particularly for vulnerable people, of any co-infection? So we have seen, we obviously know that during the winter months, COVID-19 and influenza can occur at the same time. And in fact, in April, there was some data published in the Cell Research uh, Journal, which showed that when there was co-infection of the two viruses, so influenza and SARS-CoV-2, the patients that were infected were four times likely to need mechanical ventilation and twice as likely to die compared to those people that were only infected with SARS-CoV-2. And that was looking at health records of people admitted to hospital in the UK. So we definitely know that co-infection could lead to worse outcomes. We also know that patients that are at risk for serious outcomes for COVID-19 are the same patients that have the risk factors uh, that could result in a severe influenza infection. I think in many countries we've seen a drop-off of people coming forward for their COVID booster or their flu vaccination even. Perhaps, do you think there's been a risk that some of those who are even most vulnerable have something of COVID fatigue? Uh, they don't perhaps realise that urgency, there's the need to protect themselves. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so glad that you mentioned that the COVID fatigue could be one of our, our, you know, our greatest enemies is that people have... Uh, forgotten the importance of, of of getting vaccinated and getting boosted where they can and making a plan. I think that knowing you're at high risk is really important. Um, and I think a lot of people know that they're at high risk, but the media has sort of inflated some risk factors so that people are aware, but there are lots of other risk factors that can put you at increased risk of severe infection from COVID-19 and there are more, many more of us are at risk than I think we realize. And so we need to raise awareness and provide education around those factors that put you at increased risk and encourage those people to make a plan. 
So the first of all is knowing, and then it's the plan. And so the plan is speaking to your healthcare professional before you even get infected, making a plan. How will you isolate? How will you get access to a test so that you can diagnose early and know? And then how are you going to get access to potential treatments that could help uh, avoid potential hospitalizations or severe outcomes from COVID-19? And on the risk factors then, are there some that perhaps people aren't so fully aware of? What sort of other conditions might be risk factors for the more vulnerable populations? So COVID-19 can make anyone seriously ill. And I think we know that sometimes it is random, but there are, for some people, uh, there is an increased risk for getting very sick and potentially being hospitalised. And those risk factors are not only Age is something that's been highlighted in the media, as well as uh, patients living in long-term care facilities. However, we know that other vulnerable groups, such as those with diabetes, cardiovascular disease, chronic respiratory disease, and weakened immune systems, are also at risk of severe illness. Just to put it into perspective, it's estimated that 30% of the population of the EU uh, EEA is either over 60 or has one of the underlying conditions associated with increased risk of severe disease from COVID-19. So what then should the healthcare systems, the governments do in order to inform people and to respond to this perhaps more complicated health landscape this winter? I think that there are lots of tools that we have. Um, I think that there needs to be a drive to educate, and that can be through healthcare professionals or on a government level. Uh, we're in a much stronger position than we were two years ago. So there is the education piece, but there are also tools at our disposal like vaccines, boosters, testing, as well as treatments that could put us in a better place this winter, going into this winter. And there's been so much talk about pandemic preparedness, lessons learned and so on. For, for you, Joe, what would you say does a good preparedness look like for possible pandemics? Yeah, and so it's interesting because I, I, I know that FPI have done a, a specific podcast around pandemic preparedness. So uh, this topic is covered in a lot of different forums. But if I was going to say what I think the most important um, lessons learned is that we've leveraged the strengths and capabilities of different partners. So government and industry, private, public sectors, We've all come together without adding the burdensome governance structures or sacrificing speed or quality in the development of, of, of tools to fight the pandemic. And we absolutely have to protect and strengthen the research and development environment that was fundamental to the ability to bring us to, to bring us those vaccines, to help develop those vaccines and the therapeutics for COVID-19. As we look to other diseases that could benefit from you know, what we've learned and what's been done in COVID-19, specifically things like influenza and RSV, which really during the winter months put such a burden on the healthcare system. And so along with surveillance, so I think that surveillance is really important, getting systems in place like we have for influenza, where we look at the Southern Hemisphere when we are uh, preparing for our winter in the Northern Hemisphere, and they do the same for our winter, uh, putting those systems in place, communicating effectively across different countries and across the hemispheres, and uh, then putting in those tools in order to uh, safeguard against future pandemics. 
And, and as industry, do, you talked about partnerships there. Uh, do you feel that industry could play more of a role in that, in the partnerships with healthcare systems, with governments, in terms of informing and educating and putting this high on the agenda? Absolutely. And I think that we have done that. We have formed great partnerships through the COVID-19 pandemic. And there are opportunities to do that um, going forward with other, um, you know, in other areas. And we are actively engaged with many governments to help partner on various projects and education resources. Winter's already upon us, but it's probably going to get more severe. So in terms of being ready for what might be out there, what would be in the forefront of people's minds, Joe? When it comes to COVID-19, I think it's important that people be informed, be prepared and ready to act. Know if you're at high risk of severe COVID-19. Help your loved ones to find out if they're at risk of severe COVID-19. Make a plan before COVID-19 strikes and act quickly in seeking advice from your healthcare professional. Well, Joe Atkinson, thank you very much indeed. Now I know what an anti-infectives product lead does. <laughs> thank you so much for your insights. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much, Sue. I hope you have a lovely day. And for our audience, uh, thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this discussion, do listen to other health conversations in the FPS series. You can click the subscribe button to be the first to know when we release our next episode. And you can leave a rating and a review. Well, from me, Sue Saville, thank you very much and goodbye for now.